listening to the Carrero Podcast. I am Malia Hoffman, and I'm here with Fred Ramirez. Sarah Corp is an English high school teacher and community college instructor. Much of her time outside of the classroom is spent being a mom, playing and coaching soccer, and going on adventures with her life partner. Sarah, thanks so much for being a part of our podcast today. We always like to start off and ask our guests how they became teachers and if there was anything significant that impacted that decision or any experiences you had in your teacher credentialing program. Um, well, you know, when I started college, I actually was an anthropology major originally. And part of that was because I, I really liked monkeys. I, I liked <laughs> go to like Africa and like study like gorillas, like Jane Goodall. And it just seemed like such a, like a, like a very fulfilling life because like monkeys, they can't disappoint you. They just, <laughs> um, and I was like, I had taken my anthropology classes and I had taken 100 and I had this professor, her name was Renee Bangeter. And she just, I don't know. She just sort of like took me under her wing and, she had made like subtle comments about me working in the writing center. And I'm like, Oh, I don't know. Like, you know, I want to study monkeys. I don't want to like hear people how to write. And she's like, well, you just, you know, you seem to kind of understand a little bit better than someone. And so she just was a really positive influence. Um, after working in the writing center, I realized how much I loved doing tutoring and I loved working with, um, you know, other people that maybe didn't have the same opportunity that I had had, or, um, you know, they didn't necessarily have supported parents. And so they were really to have someone who would sit down and have a conversation about their writing was, was a fairly fulfilling experience. Um, additionally, I also started dating my husband at the time and he was in school to be a math teacher. Um, and he was just sort of like, well, I'm not going to go to Africa and be a math teacher. So I don't know how we're going to do this. Uh, I don't want to say that he influenced my choice, but I think that was also part of it. Um, I do feel like when I changed my major to English and like kind of went in that direction, I felt more at ease with my choices. Um, you know, there's a lot of, you know, primatology, there's a lot of like volatility um, and not, and not stability. It's not a career that's really meant for having families. And so, and I always knew that I wanted a family and I wanted kids. And so I think teaching provided some of that stability that I felt was important. Um, and then once I got into my grad, like graduate programs, you know, I, you know, I met Fred and I met, um, you know, Dr. Powers, who was at Cal State Fullerton at the time. Um, I had a great, um, I had a great professor in another grad program, Dr. Caldwell, who I feel like I kind of stole her teaching style. She had like a vivaciousness that was just like, she had no problem coming in and like pushing kids and challenging them, but in a really nurturing way. And I feel like I kind of like saw how she was and wanted to be like that. And that sort of became like part of my identity as a teacher, that someone who can be motherly, but still, like push and encourage and hopefully inspire, not just like regarding content, but inspire regarding how we want to live our lives as better people. Yeah. And, and you, and you do teach a subject that I'm going to be biased. <laughs> you know what you're going to say. You shouldn't even go there. That's right. Well, I, I, I could say it as a social study, a former social studies teacher. You teach a subject that many would consider boring. Um, 
and I know all of my English people out there are probably cringing because I would say this in teacher ed. Um, so how do you connect your, your content with your, with your high school students? Well, I think you have to, first off, we have to get away from this perspective that English is a vacuum. Correct. It's really not. English is impacted by, like, think about a person who writes a book. They exist in a world or a context that, that produces whatever the material is that they are reading. So even if you're a history guy, the history behind a novel is so incredibly valuable. And so the problem is, is that when um, English is often taught, it's taught in a vacuum. Right. And students really do need to understand the world that existed for that particular author. Um, but like when I'm teaching, liter like I don't just teach literature. I actually see myself as a literacy teacher. Um, and the reason why I, I see that is because the consequences of illiteracy are so severe for students that it basically ensures that they will, if they can't read and they can't write, then they're going to exist in a world of poverty. Yeah. Because there are many of the students that I work with, their lives hinge on them being able to convey an argument, to write an expository text. Every single thing you do in life, whether you are, um, you know, a mechanic or you are a professor at a university, you have to be able to write and communicate. Yeah. And so, much of what I'm doing is about teaching context, teaching audience. Here's one of the best um, things I've done. So I also teach a college class. I teach 103, which is a critical thinking course. Uh, my students just finished reading Self-Reliance um, and uh, by Thoreau. And one of the conversations we had was like, he wrote this incredibly profound text about, or not self-reliance, excuse me, civil disobedience. He wrote this incredibly profound text about like, uh, about uh, protest and defiance of government and personal freedoms and feeling empowered. And then I said this to him, I said, does this change your perspective about him knowing that he was a rich white man whose aunt bailed him out of prison? <laughs> and I, and I, the students are like, like, how could he write this when you look at like Martin Luther King and Gandhi both use the principles of civil disobedience as a form of inspiration for their, uh, their protests mm -hmm. and the students. And I said, does that mean that Martin Luther King shouldn't have used his ideas or Gandhi shouldn't have used his ideas because he was a white man with privilege. And this, it, the students had to see that, um, people in their community at the time that uh, Thoreau was writing um, Self-Reliance, they didn't have that kind of privilege. So sometimes they have to borrow from those. But that doesn't mean that they don't try to create their own by elevating themselves, by advancing themselves through literacy. Thoreau had that opportunity. And so now this is their opportunity to grab onto um, English or literacy or you know critical thinking and move forward with it. But if they don't have, if you don't even open the door for them to be able to embrace a text like civil disobedience, then they're going to continue to stay within the world that they exist in. Yeah. And so this, that's like my, um, the thing that I work with students the most is it's not about you loving. It's the, what I love doesn't have to be what you love. You know, if I like Shakespeare and you don't, that's okay but I need you to um, 
embrace these skills so that you can find that what you love. Yeah. Um, another thing that we spend so much time on is I, I don't know if you've heard of the term growth mindset. I'm, I'm sure you have, yes. it's, you know, it's a nice little buzzword. Um, but like growth mindset and execution is a daily practice for many of our students because yeah. they have been trained that they are just not good at English. They're not good at writing. They're not good at reading. And it's not that you're not good at something. It's that you are inexperienced. And so in, like my classroom is the place where we take risks and we make mistakes. And that's okay because when you are practicing on a daily basis, you're going to get better. You're going to get better because things are not about it being perfect. Things are about progressing. And if they don't progress and they don't improve, we got to maybe backtrack sometimes and make adjustments. But it always needs to be this place where they feel comfortable to um, make mistakes. Yeah, and you're right. English is foundational. It, if you're not a good reader, if you um, don't have those writing skills, you're not going to be able to do science. You're not going to even be able to do math. You have to have those skills to be successful. And uh, education, just even a basic level of education opens up many more doors for people in their futures, for jobs and getting out of poverty, as you mentioned. Yeah, it, it can't be. That's, I think, with the change in, like, the state standards, mm-hmm. where things were more, like, prior, like, in, you know, about reading books, like, you know, let's read The Great Gatsby, then, and then we'll, you know, write a write an essay about it. Well, why do we have to read The Great Gatsby and write about character development? Why can't we read The Great Gatsby and talk about uh, social inequality? Yeah. You yeah. know, how did, how, why can't we look at why Fitzgerald was able to be this, you know, write this great American novel, and then there's an author like Zora Neale Hurston, who was roughly around the same time, who wasn't celebrated until the 1960s and 70s. And yet she's also talking about the American dream and she's also talking about American identity. There's a, there's a disconnect on in the kinds of, of authors students read. Yeah. If they're only reading old dead white dudes, mm-hmm. then they're not going to necessarily connect with a text. Right. And so we need to change uh, where our values are regarding what kind of material students need to read. Yeah. I like that. So they- yeah, and it's. I think that's. I think that's vital because oftentimes we, most of us, teachers who who teach within the United States are are teaching in diverse worlds, um, and 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 so by by connecting kids with with people that that they may be able to identify with, um, regarding different themes, um, that that might influence them to read, um, or or just appreciate what their own story is and, 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 and through those stories and developing their own stories, then we develop voice. Um, but can you, can you share with us some of the projects or, or assignments that you actually have your, actually have your um, kids do? Yeah. Um, so, so this last year, I, I mean, I've taught every grade level, um, you know, this last year, the last couple of years, I've been teaching ninth grade English, um, ninth graders, you know, for teachers out there that teach ninth graders, you know, they are, they are not quite human. Um, <laughs> I tell them every day, not every day, but I'm like, you know, I, 
your prefrontal cortexes are not fully developed. So I know you make bad choices. So I give them a lot of grace. Um, some things that I've done with them this year, we've done. So uh, re I give them every single day in class, I give them 10 minutes to read. Like I believe that whatever they want, if they want to come in reading uh, manga comics or they want to read Captain Underpants or they want to read, I don't like, it doesn't matter because here's the thing. You can only read so much Captain Underpants till you see a friend reading something and they're like, dude, this book is so good. You should read it. And then they pick it up. And so by giving 10 minutes of my time every single day, which I know is like an SSR silent reading is like a really old school thing. Um, I am telling them that the one non-negotiable they will always have time for in my class is reading. Because if they can read, then the, that instantly elevates them within, um, within their lives. Um, and I know that many of them just don't get um, the opportunity to read at home. You know, right. I have students that live in garages. I have students that live in a, a one bedroom apartment with eight family members. So they're not going to have the place to read at home. So if my class is that place where they can read every day, then it's going to be that place. Um, so with that, we also do like book clubs. Um, I, I got the idea from, there's this author. I don't know if um, you guys are familiar with him. His name's Kelly Gallagher. He's a teacher at Magnolia High School. Um, he's been teaching for like 35 years. Um, he's written multiple books. His, the one book that I absolutely love is called 180 days. Um, and I would recommend any new teach, any new English teacher to embrace it because, um, he talks about, uh, reading in class and writing. Um, it's a very structured class environment. So with my freshmen, I try to be as structured as possible. Um, but they do book clubs. And so my kids, we do like a speed dating book activity where I give them like 10 possible books they could do in book club. So like Fault in Our Stars and Hunger Games for my freshmen. When I do it with my seniors, they do uh, like 1984 and like Water for Chocolate. Um, and so they pick books and then they read that book during the week. And then on Fridays, they have about 30 minutes to meet with their groups and talk about what they read that week. Oh, And nice. so... Um, I, I, so I go to a book club. Um, my book club is with all, like I tell them with all these ladies who are like 50 years and older and I'm the youngest person there. Actually, my friend Juliet is there and she's in her thirties too. But for a long time, it was like me for 10 years with these older ladies and we sit and we drink wine and we talk about the books we read. And so the students are cute because they want to read the books. And then on Fridays I have tea. And they sit and they drink tea and they talk about their books and, you know, what I read this week. And I like this character. And um, it's not a perfect model because I don't give them a lot of structure for their discussions. I know that we live in a world where um, we think that we need to tell kids how they're supposed to talk about books. And I want that to be organic for them. And so it's kind of messy. And I'm, and I'm okay with that. I think that there's a time where we have to let go. Yeah. On don't have to control every single thing that happens in our classroom. Um, but I feel like the book clubs have been pretty successful with my freshmen. Um, some other stuff that I do, I, I do a lot of social justice with my older grades. Um, they read, uh, we actually, my seniors, before we went out on um, home teaching, were about to read The Hate You Give, um, which is, which is a, a pretty powerful book that deals with, um, you know, the 
the prison industrial complex and policing. And so they read a lot of nonfiction pieces and then they read the novel together and they have discussions. Um, uh, you know, part of, I need them to see that the, the world that they currently exist in for what it is, because many of them have, um, massive challenges regarding their identities as they transition into college, especially when they don't have parents who went to college. So I really want them to see sort of the conversations that they're going to have in an academic world. Um, And that is people have uncomfortable conversations. We cannot sugarcoat the reality of what their lives are going to be like beyond the high school classroom. Um, And so we, so these, these conversations, I think, what makes it great about being in an English class is it lends itself to almost any kind of conversation. Um, you know, and sometimes students say things that, you know, are, are upsetting. Like, and as a teacher, you, when you don't live in that world, it's very difficult for you to compartmentalize it. Cause for some of them, the only safe place they have is, is, is the school. Um, and then I also, I've taught AP for the last eight years, AP literature. Um, I have a master's degree in literature, so that's sort of like my little niche. And I love that. One of the things I did with them this semester was um, poetry, March Madness. Um, I don't have any basketball players, so I had to explain what March Madness was. (laughs) I love that. Um, But we chose like 36, or I chose 36 poems that had been featured on um, the AP test over the last like 40 years, sort of like the canonical literature wow. type um, poetry. So everything from like Proof Rock to Dover Beach to um, As I Lay, or not As I Lay, I'm drawing a blank right now on the other one. Um, but we chose these 36 poems. And then what we do is each day we read two for the month. Well, we got halfway through it it's for the month of March. So they read two and then they choose which is the best of the two it's not really wow. about reading it based on like we're not we don't need to look at structure we don't need to look at you know content like we don't it's more like we're thinking about poetry as how it impacts our soul is sort of the criteria we set up for an effective poem because so much like we don't have to analyze every poem that we ever read sometimes right. we just read poetry for the impact it has mm-hmm. on our um on our feelings on our on how it touches us and so um, we're still trying, I'm still trying to figure out a digital way of doing it because right now we're doing it from home. Um, so we'll, we'll start that after next week because next week is our spring break. So those are just some things I've done this year. You could use Flipgrid to do it. Have you used Flipgrid? Yeah, I use Flip. So right now I'm using Flipgrid as a forum for check-ins mm-hmm. um, because for, because I, so we're not Zooming with kids right now or at least um, the guidance has been not to zo- use Zoom with students right now, um, mm-hmm. just because there's um, there's some maturity issues that are associated with it. Um, additionally, questions about you're having like a conversation with a minor in your home, and so if the if like the district doesn't have paperwork that approves of them using that kind of technology, there could be some liability associated with it. Um, so, so we're trying to be very careful about how we use zoom with students. Interesting. Um, so I use Flipgrid, um, with them just as a weekly check-in, like, tell me what did you read this week? Um, you know, how has your quarantine been going? 
you know, what is, what are some dynamic challenges that you have at home? Um, but I have not done the Flipgrid with my poetry unit yet. Yeah. You could also use VoiceThread because VoiceThread would let you upload that poetry as the slide and have students respond to it in that way. Okay. Mm-hmm. Suggestions? Um, one of the things that, that I've been blessed with um, when is being able to come and watch you and, you know, watch you teach and not, not as an observer or in, in, in any formal way, but just to come in as like a visitor and then to talk to your, to your, to your kids. One of the things that, that I found is that you, you have such a connection, um, such a, such a special way. And, and it's, and it's those little things like I would, I would notice that right before class, um, you would you would shake hands with like every single student walking in, um, and so there's and and oftentimes within within high schools, um, a lot of teachers don't have that personal connection, and so one of the things that we're that we're going through now, and and you were just talking about it, how you're going to make this transition from face to face to online. How is this going to in, um, impact you, not just as a teacher? Um, but also just as a person, um, and then how do you think this is going to impact all of your all, um, all of your students? That um, at least what I was seeing um, that they that that they really have a connection with you. Yeah, I I think I, I mentioned this earlier. I try to make my classroom the safest place possible for them. Um, like I want them to be, to like I said, feel safe to make risks. And so when I can't build that when I'm teaching online, like you just can't, they don't, they don't know you. They don't like, it takes a long time for students to trust you. Um, you know, I had uh, like a month ago, I had a student, um, she, she was like, Miss Corp, can I give you a hug? And I was like, sure. And like, I give her a hug and she held on, to me a little bit longer uh, probably than what is like a normal hug. And I was like, and after we, she stopped hugging me, I was like, what, what's going on? And she's like, I don't know. I just haven't had a hug in a long time. Aww. And like that just, it broke my heart because I hug my kids every day. Yeah. If, if I don't hug them at least like four times, yeah. like, okay, I need to go over and give them a hug. Like, you know, so to know that like, my classroom was the one place where this student could make herself vulnerable. Yeah. It, it broke my heart, number one. But number two, it also makes me profoundly worried for her. Yeah. Because she's now at home where she doesn't, she doesn't necessarily get, you know, the hugs that she deserves because every child deserves to be hugged. Right. Um, and so I think when I'm trying to connect with them digitally, you know, I know, I know I mentioned some of the concerns that, that I have personally about zoom. Um, but it's sometimes the, the consequences of the distance is far more severe than the possible liability or concern that may be there. And so you have to, I think as a professional, you have to look at, what am I doing to bridge this gap with my students? Because right now, what maybe was like a bridge that I had built that was very strong, you know, a month ago is now 
very rickety and it's in danger of falling apart because if they don't see that I care about them from a distance, then, then they have no problem just cutting the rope and saying, you know what, you're just another adult that abandoned me or you're just another adult that's too busy, you know? And so I, there has to be, I'm still, I feel like in many ways I'm still navigating it. I'm not, I'm not as worried about my older students because they tend to be more, they, they sometimes are more resilient. Um, like, you know, my AP students, like many of them come from, you know, stronger family backgrounds, but a lot of my ninth graders, you know, I have four classes of ninth graders and they, their lives are, are really tough. They have, you know, they have families that don't necessarily, like their families say, do your schoolwork, and then that's the extent of it. And then their parents go and do their other things or do your schoolwork, but make sure you're watching your younger brothers and sisters while you're doing your schoolwork. Yeah. Or there's families that don't tell them to do their schoolwork. And I have probably 10 students that I haven't heard from. And we've been out for two weeks. So the fact that I haven't heard anything, no work, no text message. Like I use um, Remind is an Mm -hmm. app that I use that they can send me like just direct text messages. And I've gotten like the one that hugged me a month ago. She's like, Miss Corp, I don't, she told me, she's like, I don't think I can do this like a week ago. She's like, I'm just going to give up and drop out. Cause uh, she also isn't, um, she's a special education student. She has ADHD. So maybe that's why I connect with her so much. Um, (laughs) But she's like, I just, I can't, I give up. And I had, and on Monday I just called her and I was like, you, like, I said, you can't, you can't give up. Like we have come too far this year. You know, you have a C in my class. You've never had a C in English in your entire life. So we need to figure this out. What do you need from me? And, and I had to call a bunch of students that were like at the point where they wanted to give up. And so I think for me, I think what matters more rather than having a Zoom conversation or sending a text message through mind is literally a phone call. Yeah. I think that's probably the best thing to do at this point because I they exist in a world of text messages. Yeah. And digital messages through Instagram or TikTok or whatever it is that they're using to communicate with their friends. And so when you pick up a phone and you make a phone call, there's a seriousness associated with it. Right. Parents are like, your teacher's on the phone. Why are they calling? What did you do? Mm-hmm. <laughs> what they have. I think actually, oh, something I learned from Fred when I was in my teaching program, and I still do this today, is with the within the first three weeks of the school year, I call every single student that I have. And I just introduce myself and I'm like, hey, how's it going? My name's Sarah Corp. I'm your child's English teacher. Your child's not in trouble. I just wanted to introduce myself, let you know how to get a hold of me. And I've been doing that the last 13 years. Um, number one, I think it 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 checks the kids because the kids will be like, "You might you called Miss Corp? Why did you call? Like, <laughs> you know, they have all these questions." But then also, if I have to do deal with uh, discipline, or I have to, um, or I'm concerned about their grades, when I make that next conversation with them it's going to be, they're going to take it more seriously because it's not like I've called them the first time. And they know that if I'm calling them with concern, then it's something I'm really serious about because I've already touched bases with them. I've made it clear to them what my expectations are. Um, Nothing's worse than when you call a parent for the first time and it's a negative call. 
because they're going to think, well, why didn't you ever reach out to me before? Why are you waiting until this point to tell me something that's wrong with my kid? Right. And so by having those like, just, Hey, I'm so-and-so nice to meet you. Um, that I think sets a, a, um, a more effective precedent with families. So to me, I think the phone calls are going to be the best way for me to communicate with them. Yeah. So that transition of moving your classes to online, um, how did that go for you? Because from what it sounds like, you do use a lot of digital tools already. And um, so it might have been a little bit easier of a transition for you outside of just that socio-emotional, you know, touch point that you're missing. Um, how did how did it go from that, I guess, medium transition? Yeah, it's it's been okay. Um, I use Google Classroom quite a bit. So I kind of set it up the way I, I teach my online college classes, which are um, in modules. So I set them up with like a beginning module. Okay, this is what you're going to do this week. Here are all the resources you need to do this. And then a closing to the module. Hey, great job. You did these things this week. Um, and so that's kind of how I'm structuring um, their learning right now. So really front loading everything from the beginning and then giving them checkpoints throughout the week um, to have things done. But we also, I've had to, there has to be a lot of grace in transitioning to online um, with the students because even though they're digital natives and I, I um, th that term just means that they've existed in a work, like a technological world, their entire lives. Like you, me, Fred, we all, um, we all are digital immigrants. Like we did not have technology the way that it is today when we were learning. Like I used to go to the library and go to a card catalog and pull out a book or, <laughs> When I did like my master's thesis, I had, I, I, t I tell my students, I had about 50 books that I had to actually check out from the library to write my thesis. I had to order like microfilm <laughs> from like dissertations that they did in the 1920s, like, because there wasn't any research, digital research for me to use. But for our students, they exist in this digital world where they can access anything at any moment. Right. But for them to have meaningful academics within that world is incredibly challenging for them. And so you have to think about when you are designing material that it's that it is not um, busy work, that it has to be meaningful because they're not going to care about it if it's not meaningful. So. Like my seniors are reading 1984, which is like the perfect book to read right now. <laughs> it is. Pandemic state. Yeah. And, um, and so they have we, they have discussion questions that are like, you know, how does like Winston's state of existence connect to your state of existence right now? And like, how have you been stripped, you know, stripped away of your basic free, you know, and having those kinds of conversations. Um, so we, we use digital, we use Google Classroom a lot. I use Flipgrid as a great program. Um, the, it's so funny because the students are afraid to show their faces on Flipgrid. <laughs> so they put like little emojis over it. And I'm like, you're okay making like these TikTok videos and right. you're okay with like, things on Instagram. But the minute you have to be a student and it's only me seeing it, yep. they like freak out. And I'm like, you don't freak out when we're in class. Like I see you every day. Yeah. Um, hmm. So, you know, 
it, it still is challenging. Uh, for my college class, I'm actually doing, like I'm doing Zoom class with them because I teach on Tuesday nights. I teach a four hour critical thinking class. And so I had prepared, I was like, this should only take an hour. And we're taught where they're reading Allegory of the Cave and Persepolis, which is a graphic novel, um, which I recommend everyone to read if you have never read it. Um, and what was supposed to be like a one hour, like lecture on Persepolis and Allegory of the Cave turned into two and a half hours. And I did not expect them to be as engaged as they were. And they were like asking questions and they were, you know, like there was little like, uh, thinking checkpoints that we do as we're doing the lesson. And so I would pause and I'd give them time and, um, they would do the activity and then they all had like stuff to say. And I think part of it is because of all the things that are happening right now, I think that many of those students are really starved for social interaction, like, you know, the face to face. Um, so I mean, it's, it, it has been very difficult for some of my colleagues though. Um, especially for ones that have not, that don't use technology at all in the class. Like they, some of them still use transparencies. Hmm. Um, and I know, and I know that to us, we're probably like, Hey, we live in this digital world, but I think there's also a fear of, of, um, technology. And there's a fear of like putting yourself out into this digital world. Um, because what if someone takes it and uses it? What right. if someone manipulates what I say or what I do? And so we have to be also, I think, very cognizant of how we put ourselves out there. Um, so I think there's there's a, there's a balance. I do I don't think digital learning can replace what teachers do, though. I just don't. I yeah. don't see how I could connect with my students on this platform without having knowing them first. Yeah. Yeah, I'm. My mind is swirling uh, because what you're because what you're bringing up is is a lot of things that I think a lot of researchers are are trying to grapple with, um, especially with the social emotional learning that that needs to be present within within K twelve schools. Um, you know, so so what are you learning from from all this? Um, and you've and you've spoken a lot about it. Um, maybe maybe what what you could talk to is um, what what changes do you think are going to be taking place if if any not not just not just nationwide but but also for you. Um, okay. Well, I think one of the things that students being forced to home learn has really um, made people aware of is the the inequity of students access to technology. Um, so I'll, I have a student, um, he sent me a text message last night, Miss Corp, I'm behind on my work. Like he sent me a text message at like 11 o'clock at night. So I was in bed. Um, <laughs> I'm behind on my work. Um, my sister in college, she has work to do at home. My younger brother has work to do and my younger sister has work to do. And so the only time that I have to use the internet at my house, cause they only have one hotspot and they only have one laptop is at 10 o'clock at night. Wow. And, 
And he's just like, I, and he said, I'm really sorry. I know I have, you know, a B in your class and I don't want my B to go down. I just don't know what to do. And when he was like, his email probably, or his text message was like probably 500 words, like just this massive text message of like regret, remorse, but also like, like, you know, pleading with me to help him support him, give him some kind of like grace. And I literally told him, I was like, I'm not going to mark you late on assignments. I don't want you to feel like you're going to be punished for something that you can't help. And, and, you know, and he texted me this morning and it was like, thank you so much. I, I just was sort of at the point where I might as well just, you know, it goes back to, I might as well just give up. Mm-hmm. You know, and I, I wonder how many students are in that moment of like, it would just be easier for me to give up right now mm-hmm. because the, you know, we think, we think that like everyone has, you know, we see our kids with their smartphones in the classroom and we're like, oh, they, you know, they can do their work on, on their phone. Or we see our kids with, um, you know, night, like nice clothes or, you know, nice haircuts or nice shoes, but Many of that is, um, I think, a facade. It's something to show, make them feel like they have it together. But what what them being at home mm-hmm. has really shown is how um, how little many of our students have. We yeah. have at my school site. We have about eighteen hundred students, and we still have about three hundred students that don't have access to technology at home. Wow. And part of it is, um, it's not just that they, it's not that they can't get to the school to get it. And I think Fred and I have had this conversation before. It's that our school isn't open when the parents are available to make it to the school. Mm. You have to have laptop checkouts at seven o'clock at night for some of them Mm -hmm. because their parents work. Um, Or I called home on a student who hadn't done anything and I found out that she didn't have a laptop. Her mom was working or her dad was working during the day and her mom's car was broken. They couldn't afford to fix it because the mom wasn't working now because of Mm -hmm. she couldn't go. She's she cleans houses. And so there was no way for her to go to school and get a laptop. Um, Even though the school has all these they have these things. We're a title one school. We're providing meals for students while they are out. But the problem is that many of our students can't get to the school because of transportation. Think about how many kids take buses. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so they can't walk three miles with their younger brothers or sisters to come to school and pick up the lunch or pick up two meals, you know, for their family to then go and then walk three miles home. It's just not like yeah. this is, I think that this hasn't just been um, financially devastating for these families but it's been um, devastating for them, you know, social, social, emotionally, it's been devastating for them, their communities. It's just the inequity that exists within um, communities of color in our area. It's, it's a, it's an American tragedy. Yeah. It really is. Well, it's for the world though. I mean, it's not just, it's not just happening in America. It's happening in the world. So that's I think I see it on like the microcosm yeah. of like with Because you're closer to that for sure. Yeah. Um, wow. So I mean, yeah, all of that's 
has all these second and third order effects that we hadn't really foreseen and we will probably be trying to work our way through for the next several months and maybe even years to come, um, which is scary. But um, to start to wrap things up, you've spoken about so much <laughs> and um, we like to ask our guests what their call to action is. If you could give our listeners one thing to take away from you, what would that be? Um, so um, I would say the one that has probably, I've already talked about like literacy um, earlier in the interview. So I guess the one I want to hone in on is, um, is about empowering um, my students to take my job. Nice. <laughs> Lack of a better expression. You know, I work at a school with mostly Latinos, you know, Latinx students. And so um, I always feel like the first day that they come into my class, they are like, great, another white lady trying to tell me how I should learn, how I should, um, how I should be as a student. And, you know, she doesn't know what my life is like. <clears throat> and I think one of the most powerful things I can do is not try to teach them how to be me or how to, you know, be an academic, but to inspire them to take my job because my students need to see someone that looks like them. Mm -hmm. My students need to see someone who has come out of their community teaching them literacy because I can do my best to mentor them and I can do my best to love them. But my, my background is so, so different mm -hmm. that I have had to, um, I have to almost sometimes, uh, force myself to slow down, to realize that many of my students are the gap between what they are able to do and what I was able to do when I was their age is so incredibly massive because of what they have endured. Um, I was having this conversation with someone the other day. He's a, he's our union president and he, this is his last year as union president. And he's going to go back to teaching high school government and econ next year. Um, he's roughly my age. And I tried to explain to him, I said, the students that we have now are incredibly different than the students we had six years ago. And he's like, well, what do you, what do you mean? And I'm like, six years ago, they were in fifth or sixth grade. Um, they were, their families were just in the middle of a, a recession. And so for them, their whole lives have been identified by struggle, by yeah. poverty. And when you are, so you have to, you have to give them more flexibility. You have to give them more opportunity to make mistakes and to take risks because in their world that they live in, a mistake or a risk isn't just about, um, isn't just about like, oops, I like messed up. It's sometimes it's, it's, it's irre irreparable. Um, the New York Times, I think it was the New York Times had this interesting article that um, for m many families in America, a, um, a mistake that could cost them $400 could financially devastate them. Wow. Being, like evicted from their homes, not being able to eat. I mean, to, 
you know, to us, maybe $400 doesn't seem like a lot, but $400 for our students, our students' families is devastating Mm -hmm. to where they could lose their homes. They could be homeless. And so the only way that they, that students are ever truly going to feel like they can come out of um, their lives, like to not exist in poverty, to, you know, rise up is that they need to see someone who looks like them mentor them and um, inspire them because my circumstances have been totally different. But if they see, um, you know, a, a Latina instructor that's teaching them, you know, like water for chocolate and talking about what it means to be, you know, Mexican, what it means to be American, you know, they're more likely to say, you know what, I want a piece of that. Mm-hmm. Okay, I want a piece of this world that you live in. And yep. so I want to teach me, show me, mentor me to become that person that you became and that person that you know I can become because you've come from where I've been. And, you know, so so that's something that's sort of become, I think in the last probably three or four years, I've tried to embrace into my practice. Um, I, I've been very lucky that I've had, I think in counting to start this year, I think I've had about 17 former students go on to become English teachers As boring as you think English is, friends. (laughs) Um, But it it doesn't need to be English. It could be anything. It could be science. It could be math. It could Mm -hmm. be, you know, Spanish. I don't don't care what they teach. I just think that we need more people of color in the classroom. Um, Because I think that would really transform the education system. Mm -hmm. Um, We need new ideas in education. We've been doing the same thing for a long time. And as you can see, the system we have that exists, it's not it's not working now in this mode of crisis. Right. So what are we going to do to adapt? Mm-hmm. Wow. So much to think about. And we could probably even just take each one of these topics and talk about them for another hour. Um, but we should wrap up. So with all of that, thank you so much for sharing all of your ideas and what you're doing with your students and how you're connecting. And it sounds like building those relationships is very foundational for you. If other teachers would like to connect with you about your ideas, your projects, your work, how should they try to go about getting a hold of you? Um, I think probably the best way would be my email. Um, do you want me to say it? Yes. Okay. So my email is Mrs. So mrs.scorp at gmail.com. Um, that's usually, you know, the best way, um, Honestly, I, I don't have the answers to most anything. <laughs> I feel like in many ways I'm just kind of navigating and adjusting. And I think I think I I look back at my teaching self 13 years ago when I felt like I knew everything, and then now I feel like I know nothing. Um, <laughs> but I think that's kind of the way it goes. Um, if anyone is interested in doing like long distance book clubs with my students, that's Fine. one thing I would definitely be interested in is finding not just students in like my school, but students maybe in another country to, you know, talk about a particular book that we're reading. I think that could be a great experience to help, you know, open my students' eyes to various perspectives. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Sarah. And thank you for your work with your students and for your time today. 
And okay. we look forward to hearing more about your work coming yeah. coming up. Yeah, thanks. It was it was nice meeting you, and it was good seeing you, Fred, or talking to you. Again, yeah. <laughs> All, right. All right. Have a good day, guys. You too. You Bye. Too, Sarah.